once you have found your spot there in Acts chapter 5, uh, hold your place and then turn to the right to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, where we will begin today. So, hold your spot in Acts chapter 5, and then begin with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. So, as you are searching for those two passages, uh, we have been in the book of Acts for a few months now, and one of the big things that we have seen in Acts, especially chapters 4, and we'll see it all the way through chapter 7, is this issue of boldness from the believers and the apostles about the gospel, and also they encounter persecution and pushback from the leadership and those in authority over them. And so, before we read what Peter said in Acts, I want to start with what Peter later wrote in his first epistle, uh, same person here, same apostle, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. The apostle Peter writes by the Holy Spirit, "'Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good.'" For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Well, here we see Peter's view of government, which is in complete agreement with what the Apostle Paul perhaps even more famously writes in Romans chapter 13, the first few verses there. And so, under normal situations, here is what we are instructed to do. We are called to, for the Lord's sake, obey and be subject to the governing authorities, uh, whatever those may be. So, if you work in a business and you have a boss over you, uh, you are called to act honorably towards your boss, to obey your boss and whatever your employer asks you to do. And in normal situations, that is precisely what we are called to do. If you are a student, you are called to obey your teachers and to obey the faculty and to obey your principal or to obey the president of your school or whoever and whatever that may be and look like. And if someone is to mock or make fun of a Christian, it should not be for us being uh, insubordinate when there is no reason to be. So it says in verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then listen one more time to verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, that same emperor, which Peter commands us to honor at the time, Nero, and that Paul commands us to honor, is later that same emperor. Well, he had some issues. Do you remember Nero's story? Later in life, he had, uh, let's just say, some issues. And he was a younger person, so he was in his 20s for most of his time as as emperor, essentially, and uh, he became increasingly really demented later in his life and began to torture and kill and uh, murder Christians. And from church history, Peter and Paul are both killed by him later on. But Peter here is saying to honor the emperor. Very interesting. So, turn with me now to the book of Acts, 
Whenever we hear a passage like that or Romans 13, oftentimes, immediately, we think of, what about this situation? What about that situation? Aren't there times where we are called to civil disobedience or to disobey our governing authorities or any authority uh, that, that we would normally be called to be in submission to? And today's passage is one of those situations that we hope is rare uh, in our lifetimes and we hope is rare in human history, but these times do come where there is a time to disobey human authority that may be over us. So I want to begin with the text we had a couple weeks ago. Now, in case you feel like we're, the, the passage almost repeats itself, just to kind of refresh you here, in chapter 4, they are taken by the Sanhedrin. Remember, we had the image of the Sanhedrin on the screen. They were taken before that elite group uh, of 71 members, including the high priest, and they were told to be quiet about Jesus, stop teaching in this name, and then they leave. And then we have those stories about unity and also betrayal within the early Christian community, Ananias and Sapphira, who, are, who the Lord strikes down and they die for lying to the Holy Spirit. And then again now we return to this issue of persecution by those religious elites. And so let me read the one from a few weeks ago, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John standing before the ruling body of the Jews at the time in Jerusalem, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, let's pick up with today's passage, and you will see similar themes that we'll be walking through as we go in chapter 5, verse 12. And before I read this, really to boil down this whole sermon into a sentence, and there's going to be a lot of other issues around this, but the central issue comes straight from... Peter's mouth later in the chapter, we must obey God rather than men. So that's sort of this passage in a nutshell. We must obey God rather than men, which will come in verse 29. But first, we will start in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, the healing ministry here is certainly unique in church history. This is not something that we will expect on a recurring basis today like this. Uh, But that being said, do you notice who the people are who are most desperate to be around the believing community and around the apostles? 
It is the weak, the helpless, the desperate, the sick, those oppressed by demons. Those are the ones flocking to the believers and to the apostles. And who are the ones who are not flocking to the apostles? It is the religious elites. Does this sound like it was during the time of Jesus, just months and years before this? Yes. And it is so often the case in church history that the gospel does its greatest work amongst those who the world esteems least. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were wealthy and powerful, but God chose what is poor to shame those who are wealthy. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose those who are nothing and despised that God might be all in all, that we might boast in the Lord. And so a sign of the gospel often at work is that it does its work amongst those who are seemingly least significant in the eyes of the world, while so often the rich, the powerful, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous are the slowest to accept the gospel and oftentimes the most antagonistic to the gospel. Now we'll pick up verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, we're just going to stop there for a moment. This is what you see throughout uh, the New Testament. The people who really do not enjoy the apostles are those who oftentimes are jealous of them. See, what we're going to see today is the apostles fear God, not man, and the religious leaders here, they fear man, not God. And so what you're going to see is they crave, the religious leaders crave human approval. That's why they are jealous of the success and popularity of Peter, James, John, and the other apostles. They want to have that approval. They want that approval at whatever cost it will be. We just saw at the end of the other Gospels, when we went through John uh, a little over a year ago, we went through the Gospel of John, what do we see? These same high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, right? The father and the son. They want Jesus off the scene. Why? Because they are scared that Jesus threatens their power structure in Jerusalem. And so whatever it takes to get rid of Him and secure their power and their prestige and their position, they will do even if it is killing an innocent man. As, as Caiaphas said, the high priest, it is better that one man should die for the nation than that the whole nation should perish. And he was speaking there of letting the innocent Jesus die so that he could maintain power. So they put the apostles in the public prison. And now look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, number of people pointed this out. I hadn't thought about this, but the Sadducees not only did not believe in the resurrection, they also did not believe in angels. Talks about this more in Acts later on. They didn't believe in angels or the resurrection. So, look at the irony here. The Sadducees put the apostles in jail, and the Lord says, oh, I'm going to send an angel to get them out. You know those 
those beings that you don't believe in, I'm going to send one of those to, uh, to set them out of your prison. So an angel that the Sadducees don't believe in comes and rescues the apostles. By the way, this is not just Peter and John anymore. Uh, they were the ones imprisoned in chapter 4. But this looks like this may be all or at least most of the apostles because we're told later that Peter and the other apostles, plural, were in prison. So that means it wasn't just two. It wasn't just Peter and John. It may have been all 12. Uh, we're not sure exactly how many, but perhaps the majority of them at least are in prison this time. And an angel lets them out. Now, I just want to point out something here. The apostles are going to get themselves in more trouble later in the chapter. Here's what is interesting. They are, in a way, unlike any other time, they are performing signs and wonders and miracles in their ministry, and an angel just showed up to let them out of prison. So the assumption would be, if they're performing miracles all the time, people want to get near their shadow just to be healed, and an angel just let them out of prison, it would sound like these apostles are free from suffering in this life. And perhaps almost ironically, in this very moment where a miracle occurs to get them out of jail, the angel gives them instructions which put them basically back in jail in a few moments. <laughs> so the angel gets them out of jail and says, okay, now I want you to go do the thing that got you in here in the first place. Keep preaching in the temple. And so the, even though there's a miracle getting them out, this is not an escape from suffering. They will suffer before this chapter ends in a pretty severe way. And so signs and wonders and suffering apostles go together in the same chapter, which oftentimes we pit one against the other, but they go together here hand in hand. And look at the instructions of this angelic uh, messenger, verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. A sign that we fear and obey God rather than ultimately fearing and obeying human beings is right there. We are not afraid to speak all the words of this life. Now, we, we live in a culture that loves parts of the Bible, right? We like those highly edited and selective portions of Scripture that sound nice and sort of upbeat and happy and vague enough to where we can sort of embrace them culturally. But what is very offensive is speaking all the words of this life, to speak all of it. As Paul will say later in Acts to the Ephesian elders, he says, I am innocent of the blood of all because I did not refrain from speaking to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I didn't cover up anything. I didn't hide anything. I taught the entire counsel of God. I did not try to edit Scripture. I taught all of it. And listen, no matter what kind of dynamic it is, whether it's a small group, whether it's talking to a friend, whether it's talking to a believing friend, whatever it may be, talking to a family member, it is hard to be clear and to speak truthfully about all the words of this life. It, it is hard. We talked a few weeks ago, boldness is being clear in the face of fear. I believe that Kevin DeYoung said that. It is being clear in the face of fear. And so, to be clear and to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth takes tremendous courage because there are going to be things that we must speak in truth and love that will not always be welcomed by those around us. And listen, unless we think that that's only true right now in this world, you know, right now, no, 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 no. Even here in the early church, if they speak all the words of this life, they get put in jail. 
So, so there has never been a time where the Bible has just been fully accepted in all that it says in every culture fully. It just doesn't happen. Um, so here, speak all the words of this life. Verse 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the miracle got them out of jail, but it took an act of submission to God to get them where they were supposed to be. They had to choose at sunrise to walk into the temple. I mean, can you imagine the adrenaline going? Because you're like, we, they're thinking we are going to be in some serious trouble. And, and we could just go off and hide. We could just travel to another place. They would never find us. We would be fine. We would be free. But no, they obey. They walk every step up into that temple, that massive area, and they walk inside and they begin to teach the very thing they have been warned and threatened not to do, and here they are teaching the people at daybreak. Middle of verse 21, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, that's those 71 members of the Sanhedrin, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked. And the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Now, pause here. Not only are the Sadducees not believers in angels, and the angel just got, you know, the people they don't like out of jail, they also don't like to be perplexed about things that they're doing publicly. And here, they have no clue what has just happened. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. There are multiple guards. All the doors are locked. The guards swear that no one has come in or out of these doors. They swear they have not been paid off. Nothing has happened. They, they are adamant about this. And the religious leaders cannot understand how, when they open the, the, the doors and they go back into the prison, they're all gone. This is not possible. They're perplexed. These are men who love to know what's happening, and now they are publicly embarrassed. They don't know what has happened. Verse 25, while they're talking this over, no doubt, it says, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, just, just notice, those who fear man more than God, before I, let me just, that may be unusual to talk about fearing God or fearing man. What do we even mean by that before I continue this point? To, to fear man or to fear God is not merely just being afraid. Much more to it than that. To fear man is to have an almost reverential awe of what they think about you. So if you, if you struggle with fear of man, that means you crave, and listen, we are all guilty. But if you fear man, you crave human approval, and you have a dread over human disapproval. The thought of being criticized, mocked, belittled, publicly shamed is your greatest nightmare if fear of man is a struggle, which it is probably for all of us. And if you fear God, it doesn't just mean that you're afraid, although there is an element of fear when it comes to God. He is holy, we are not. There is an element of fear. But it is reverencing, it is standing in awe of who He is, and it is loving His approval and obeying His will and putting His will above all others. 
So that when push comes to shove, if it's God or someone else, we choose God because we love and long to obey Him and to seek His approval in our life. And so, these religious leaders, they look like they love God. I mean, superficially. Why? They know the Bible, their Old Testament. They teach it. They are Torah observant. They tithe. They do all the stuff. But underneath it all is not a love for God. We know that because they had God in the flesh murdered. So, if you're obeying the law and you kill Jesus, you're not obeying the law for Him. So, what was their motive? Underneath all their religiosity, their deepest commitment was human praise. They gave to be seen by men. Jerry's passage was that last week, Jerry, in Matthew 6. They gave to be, to be praised by others. They prayed to be praised by others. All their religious observance was to be seen and praised by others. I, I honestly think that their, their prayer life in public was a lot stronger than their prayer life in private. Their giving in public was a lot bigger than the, 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 their left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. That, that, when it was public, they were all in. When it was private, wasn't as committed as it looked. And so they have this deep love of other people and their praise. Not, not love of people, love of the, the praise of other people. And so we see this here. Number one, they're jealous of the apostles. Why? Because the apostles have the praise of the crowds. And number two, now they are taking the apostles captive, but not by force because, verse 26, they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Do you see? All their actions are calculated in relationship to how they can maintain praise from the people. They say, okay, we really hate these apostles, but if we take them by force, we'll lose the approval of the crowds, and they may even try to hurt or kill us by stoning. They'll be so upset because, I mean, think about this. This is before modern medicine. Mortality rates were much lower than they are today. People did not live as long. And so you have people who can just heal any and every disease. All were healed in verse 16. All who came to the apostles were healed. So imagine the, the love the crowds had for the apostles and the very thought that these leaders might get them and put them in jail or kill the leaders means all their healing ministry is gone. So the crowd would revolt, no doubt, if that were to happen. And so they, they calculate, they say, okay, let's bring them here. We want to talk to them, but if we do it by force, we'll lose their approval. So their whole life, I mean, can we just, that is exhausting. We've all been there, haven't we? Living for the approval of other people is exhausting because the second you get it, you, it starts wearing off and you need more of it and you need a fresh supply of approval and you need new compliments and you need new this and new that. I mean, you know, the, the joke, and this isn't a tired thing by now, but with social media, you know, it's how many likes, how many shares, how many retweets, how many favorites, how many whatever it may be. And, and how, long does the, how long does the thrill of that last? Not very long. And you need what? You need more. You, you, you need a bigger following. You need more numbers. And the numbers, they excite, and then the, 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 the excitement just wears off. And I think it was uh, in screw tape letters, remember, C.S. Lewis said, it's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Human approval cannot do what we want it to do for us. It cannot give us a stable identity, and it cannot save us. It cannot rescue us. All it can do is sort of give us a temporary feeling of, of a certain kind of a thrill, and then it begins to wear off, and you have to calculate your whole life to keep it. And then, guess what? There is anxiety at the thought of what? 
losing it. And then there is depression if you lose it or whatever it may be. We fear losing it. So, let me just say, whether you're a believer or not, if you right now feel like, okay, I think recently I've really been giving in to that idol. I mean, to an unusual degree, I've been leaning in, trying to find security and worth and identity in what people say about me, think about me. Their perception of me is just sort of my be-all, end-all. It's all I think about. The Bible here isn't trying to so much condemn, although that is bad. What the Bible's trying to do is it's trying to rescue you and free you from that. That lifestyle is not life and joy. What did the angel just say? Speak all the words of this life. If you want life, you cannot find it through jealousy and fear and manipulation of others. If you want life, you can have life in the Lord Jesus. He offers you righteousness in Christ. He offers you acceptance. He offers you love that can never change or fail. He offers you promises that are eternal. All of that is on the table and available if we will repent and trust in Him as our security and our worth. We'll continue here. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That they almost don't want to use the name, do they? What's the name? It's Jesus. They go out of their way over and over to not mention the name. They just keep saying the name. They don't say the name Jesus or Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. They just say the name. Isn't there something about even the name Jesus that makes people uncomfortable to this day? I mean, again, talking about God, people can be somewhat comfortable. Talking about Jesus, oh no, you're one of them, right? Oh, you're talking about, oh, you brought up the J word. You're talking about Jesus. Okay. They try to almost avoid using the word Jesus. Look again, verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, avoiding his name, this man. Now, isn't that criticism the greatest compliment you can imagine? You have filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus. I mean, that would be the ultimate insult. I would love that insult. If someone said about our church, you guys are filling Athens with the teaching of Jesus. You guys are filling your dorm, your apartment building. You're filling it with the teaching of Jesus. The place where you work is being filled with the teaching of Jesus. That is a great compliment. Where, where others may see that as a negative thing, the apostles see this as a wonderful and glorious thing. And they say, not only have you filled Jerusalem with this teaching, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I'm sorry? Uh, okay, let's rewind a couple of months. The same people said to Pilate, let Jesus' blood be on us and on our children. They said, we're taking full responsibility. We want this guy crucified. Pilate, let his blood be on us and on our children. And now that the apostles actually attribute the death of Jesus to this group, they say, it, it sounds almost like you're, you guys are blaming us for the death of Jesus. Like you're, you're putting his blood on us. Yeah, just like you guys said about three months ago. You remember that? Yeah, that, this is what you guys actually requested, that the blood of Jesus be on you and on your children. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
Uh, this is just a central statement to today's passage. We must obey God rather than men. Now, again, normally speaking, we are called to submit to whatever human institution we are under. By the way, everybody is called to submit in multiple ways as believers. First Peter chapter 3 talks about what if a couple is married, husband and wife, and what if the gospel is preached and the wife becomes a Christian and the husband refuses to become a Christian? What, what should happen then? And Peter says the wife should still graciously with a quiet and gentle spirit be a loving support and submit to her husband who's not a believer and try to win him over without a word by her, by her character. And then it says, well, also what would say, along with what Peter says here, but if your husband commands you not to go to church and worship with God's people in a respectful way, you must disobey your husband. If your husband says, don't pray to Jesus, stop doing that, worship my Roman gods instead, the wife must graciously say, no, I cannot follow you in that way. Now, in American history, we've typically had it pretty good, but as you can see, this is the year 2020, you just don't know what could happen next. Um, I'm sure many of you have tracked the story over the last six months or so with uh, churches in California, which have been essentially been unable to meet in any significant way. And John MacArthur uh, and his church did an act of civil disobedience a few months ago. They said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We are going to meet because we do not believe that um, giving up meeting is going to be a good thing. This could go on for a full year of no church services. And so they said, listen, their elders met together and they said, we believe as an act of obedience to Jesus, we must meet together as a church. And so they began to meet together as a church and they've done so over the last several months in disobedience to uh, the governor of California. And they have, so far as I can tell, they've won every single hearing essentially up until now uh, in the courts. But that was an act of courage and an act of civil disobedience. I honestly would not have expected that such a thing would happen so quickly in our history, but here it is. And so we should not be surprised if the time comes where, there are, where, where there's a lot on the line, a whole lot on the line, where uh, it may be, you know, we, we must think through every instance and every situation, but there is a time where in our lifetimes it would not surprise me if God's church must in different ways practice civil disobedience depending on what all that may be. I don't know what the next year, 10 years, 30 years will look like. I have no idea. Uh, things could change in one direction or the other. We just simply don't know. But there is a time to submit to our governing authorities, but when they ask us to go against our conscience or when they ask us to disobey Scripture, we must obey God rather than man at that point. Look at verse 30. Peter continues. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Just a footnote there, it doesn't mean that you earn the Holy Spirit by obeying God. You know, he's given the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. What it means is just the opposite. Those who obey God have the Spirit, because it's impossible to obey God apart from the Spirit. So God exalted Jesus to His right hand as leader and Savior, and Jesus, at God's right hand, gives us repentance, 
So if you have repented of your sin, that is a gift from Jesus. He has given you the willingness to repent, and He has given you the forgiveness of your sins, and He has given you the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey Him. Now, apart from those gifts, repentance, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit, we would never joyfully and willingly submit ourselves to Him, but He has graciously intervened to transform us and to give us those gracious gifts. Okay, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now, pause here. Before I read anything more about this man, Gamaliel, you may have heard of him. Listen to this later in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul is speaking. Listen to this. Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, same guy, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you are to this day. The apostle Paul was trained, his seminary was sitting at the most famous teacher of his day, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was not a Christian. Uh, He was a Pharisee. He was not a believer. But look at verse 34 again. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now, now pause here. This is where we see the providence of God at work for the apostles who fear the Lord more than they fear man. Right now, the apostles are on the verge of being killed. All of them. You say, where is that? Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That is all of them. Imagine the difference that Christian history would have been if a few months into the early church, all of the apostles were executed by these religious leaders. I mean, imagine that. First and second Peter are never written. The gospel of Matthew is never written. The gospel of John is never written. First, second, third John are never written. Revelation is, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine how different church history would have been had they been killed as was desired by the council at this moment as they are at the mercy, it seems, of these 71 Sanhedrin members. But we believe in the providence of God, which means God can use even non-Christians and does use non-Christians to do His bidding in the world. I mean, you think of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers who at the time were no believers. They were murderous then lied about by Potiphar's wife, thrown in jail wrongly, and then my favorite one, forgotten. Remember, forgotten by the, was it the cupbearer or the baker? I always get them confused. Cupbearer is forgotten for two more years, and Joseph is finally delivered through all those steps of all these things happening to him. Was God at work in every single event, even the worst events of his life, to bring about the saving of the world through famine? Yes, So, providence is a wonderful doctrine. Uh, John Piper just wrote a 700-page book called Providence, and it's about to come out. We've already ordered some copies of it, so if you're curious, I mean, you can also use it as a doorstop if you you have no other purpose for it, but 700-page book on providence, and Piper just goes through, apparently, I haven't read it, goes through the whole Bible and just shows God's sovereignty over everything and how this is a wonderfully comforting truth for believers. Because, listen, if you are standing there before a group of rulers who could have you killed, I mean, are they going to kill Stephen in a couple chapters? By the way, that was illegal. Okay, a little side comment. They were supposed to not kill anybody. They could whip people, 
But they could not have people killed legally because the Romans did not, they reserved capital punishment for, you know, Pilate and the, the Roman leaders. But if they were angry enough, they would still kill because that's what, how they killed Stephen. It was illegal. It was not according to Roman law. They weren't supposed to do that, but they were so infuriated that they had Stephen killed on the spot. They could have done the same thing right here to the apostles. So what does the providence of God arrange? At the very moment the council's about to vote to have them killed, a non-Christian Pharisee teacher who trained Paul stands up and says, guys, I got another plan. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to, oppose, to be opposing God." Now pause there just for a moment. It, it is interesting, his plan. He mentions these two guys, and I won't talk about this for long, but Thutis and Judas the Galilean. You may be familiar with this, but in the first century, there were lots of false messiahs that kept showing up and saying, hey, I'm ready to defeat the Romans, and so grab, you know, a, grab a sword or a spear and join me, and they would go off with their little group of 200, 300, 400 people, and they would start a revolt, and then what would happen? The Romans would come in, kill the leader, and the followers were like, okay, we're, we're not on his team anymore. Put the sword down, walk away quietly, and they would disperse their followers, and the whole movement would come to nothing. There, there are no Thutis followers today in the world, ladies and gentlemen. If you are one, I would love to meet you because I don't understand why you're following Judas. Judas the Galilean, not a, lot, not a big movement in the world following Judas the Galilean. But there is a big movement following Jesus of Nazareth. W what's going on there? Well, Jesus being the true Messiah was a different kind of Messiah, and we'll talk about that in just a moment as we come to the Lord's table. But these are two false messiahs from before the time of Jesus, for whatever it is worth. Uh, Josephus mentions Judas the Galilean himself in his works from the first century, and we hear a little bit more about him from, from there. But here's the point that is being made by Gamaliel. He says, listen, these false messiahs are a dime a dozen. They show up all the time. If they're not really from God, their movement will fail, and their followers will be scattered, and we will never hear from them again. But let's just say that we're all wrong about these Christ followers, these Jesus followers. Let's just say that we're wrong. We might even find ourselves opposing God Himself if He really is the Messiah. And, you know, you do wonder, did the jailbreak have anything to do with His doubt right there? You know, maybe they, I mean, they did escape jail and there's no explanation. I mean, perhaps there is something to this movement, even though He Himself doesn't believe it. And so he says, let's keep away and let's see if this plan is from God. Now, there is a flaw in His argument, I think. I mean, temporary success of a movement, does that prove that it's true? Mormonism has been around for well over a hundred years. You've got uh, Islam has been around for quite some time. Hinduism and Buddhism, I mean, there are many religious movements that have been around and endured for a long period of time. So just because a movement endures does not prove that it is true. But he's at least half right. If this movement is from God, 
Okay, you killed the leader, and the followers should be scattering, but what's going on? They're all staying together and preaching, and there's a massive movement following behind them. If this is from God, we will not be able to stop it. Okay, toward the end of verse 39. So they took his advice. That's the providence of God right there. They took his advice not to kill the apostles. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Okay, they, they beat them. What, what does that mean? So, it's a, it's a little hard with these words in the New Testament for, a, for beating or uh, different words are used. It's a little hard to pin down precisely what happened, but most commentators think the, the, the most likely thing that happened was this. It wasn't that he got, you know, a couple of kicks or he got hit a couple of times. Th- this word almost certainly refers back to a law in Deuteronomy, which talks about the, how severe a punishment can be for a lawbreaker. And it says, remember how many lashes? You should not go beyond 40 lashes in a punishment, uh, in a severe punishment. Very likely, and what the Pharisees would have followed that, uh, what we are told from history, if the Pharisees were the ones that had control over this, what they would do is they would do, you know, 39 lashes to make sure that they weren't breaking God's law. Think about the irony of that, right? They're, they're mistreating Jesus' apostles, and they're making sure they don't go beyond 40 lashes, so we're keeping God's law as we beat up God's messenger. Just think about that. So, at, what they often did was they would do one-third of the stripes on the front of the chest and two-thirds on the back. So, 13 on the front, 26 on the back, and they would, they would uh, take something, basically three straps of leather. They would, they would have perhaps other embedded things in them. They would whip across the front, twice across the back, across the front, twice across the back. Cross the front, twice across the back, cross the front, twice across the back, cross the front, twice across the back, all the way until you've done that 13 times, that, that cycle, 13 times. Now, this could kill you. The apostles did not die from this, but just imagine if that is the beating that they endured, which is highly likely. I want you to imagine them leaving. They are bloody there's going to follow from this infection and fever, and who knows what all will come as a result of this. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Here is how you know you're fearing God more than you're fearing human beings. When human beings beat you and mock you and tell you to be quiet and send you away, they think it is an honor to be dishonored for Jesus. They are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So just as a comfort, if you have ever been mocked in the slightest way or looked at a little bit funny for your faith in Jesus, it may be, you know, we're not going to probably experience this, at least I hope not, but, but maybe you experience lesser degrees of insult or people just look down on you, maybe they leave you out, they, they know about your Christian beliefs. Whatever degree you've experienced, little bits of persecution in your life, even if it's just a, perhaps emotional or relational, we can rejoice in that because the Lord is counting you worthy to have a little taste of the sufferings that Jesus Himself endured. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of His house? 
We must know that if they hated the, the, the master, they will also hate his servant. So we should count it an honor to be suffering with Christ. Last thing for today, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, which is to your right, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we are turning here, our little sufferings in this life pale in comparison to Christ because when Christ suffered for us, He did not simply just suffer a physical whipping or nails or crucifixion. He was suffering under God's judgment for our sin. Our sin placed on Him, His righteousness placed on us, us if we believe in Him. Jesus endured the infinite punishment that we deserve for our sin so that we can be rescued from our sin and ourselves and be saved. And here's what Paul says as we approach the Lord's table. Look with me at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then here's the warning, especially in light of last Sunday's passage. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. The Lord's table is for believers in the Lord Jesus. Uh, if you are not a believer today, uh, it's not so much that this is an exclusive meal, but it's that what this meal symbolizes is what you need if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus. You need first to repent of sin and to trust in Him, what these elements symbolize. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've repented of sin and trusted in Him, you're not walking currently in unrepentant sin or you're not out of fellowship with another believer, then we would invite you, uh, as soon as I'm done praying, to come forward and to partake of these elements. You can return to your seat and you come forward repenting, you return rejoicing because of what Christ has done. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we would ask You to give us Your Spirit in a great way that You would help us to care far more of Your opinion and Your will than about the opinion of people. God, help us to fear and obey You above all. Oftentimes that will look like us submitting to our human institutions, whatever those may be. But when the time comes, if it does come, for us to 
disobey our human authorities in order to obey you. I pray we would do it um, with courage and humility, that we would obey you rather than man. And God, I pray as we approach this table that we would be reminded of the Lord Jesus who bore our sin in his body on the tree and rose for our justification. And I pray you'd be at work now and as we sing in just a moment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.